The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. China has been taken aback by the situation in Ukraine. They're deeply grieved by the damage to citizens and so on and so forth. And so I think China, you know, really wants to have it all. It wants to preserve its close strategic relationship with Russia. It wants to maintain its economic and diplomatic ties with Europe and key states in Asia and ultimately with the United States. It wants to be seen as a responsible great power. Uh, But these are, you know, all very difficult objectives to sort of juggle, and I don't know if it's really done that well. I'm Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for May 2nd, 2022. Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine is putting one of its closest partners, China, in a difficult position. Just weeks before the conflict began, China and Russia announced a new partnership without limits that was seen as a shared bulwark against pressure by the United States and its allies. But Russia's choice to attack its neighbor Ukraine is in awkward tension with China's long-standing position against the use of force between states. And some cracks may be showing in the new relationship, as China has so far not proven willing to come as wholeheartedly to Russia's support as its pre-war declaration might have suggested. To better understand how the war in Ukraine is impacting China's strategy towards the rest of the world, I sat down with two legal experts, Dr. Patricia Kim, a David and Rubenstein fellow at the Brookings Institution who specializes in China policy, and Professor Julian Ku, a professor at Hofstra University School of Law who has studied China's approach to the international system. We discussed the new relationship between China and Russia, China's role in the Ukraine conflict, and what lessons it is taking away from the Western response, including for its own interests in Taiwan. It's the Lawfare Podcast for May 2nd, what the war in Ukraine means for China's global strategy. Julian, I want to start with you because I actually want to take ourselves back to the days before the start of the Ukraine offensive and really the years and decades before that. Give us a sense about how China framed its view, its vision of the international order both, you know, international law playing a major role there, but also the idea about states. We know sovereignty is something that frequently comes up in Chinese rhetoric. It's an idea that they take seriously, as many other countries do. And often it's a point of tension with the West and other countries around human rights and other issues. And it's kind of part of a broader way they framed states' rights and obligations and duties in the international system, a lot of which, of course, are now a major point of friction around the Ukraine conflict. But but before the outbreak of that conflict, how did China see that world order and the way different states fit within it? 
China's view of the world, right, is right. It floats from the People's Republic, which we call Communist China, which sort of was kind of on the outside looking in from 1949 until 1971. Um, the United States did not recognize it. A lot of other countries didn't recognize it. So China sort of was the PRC had this kind of a, you know, had this period where it felt very isolated from the world order. So to me, the most important thing to understand about the way China sees or traditionally saw the world was that when it joined the United Nations in 1971, it really embraced sort of the a UN order and became from one of its critics became a sort of a big defender of it. And then later on has really now established the, what they call the UN led international order is sort of how they think the world order should be organized. And so the key to them though, the, the parts of the UN order that they're most interested in, both from a legal and sort of a general perspective is the UN's recognition of sovereignty of state sovereignty and sovereign equality, so that every state has equal sort of sovereign status, whether it's big or small. And then further, that state sovereignty includes a, a very strong view of non-interference in the domestic affairs of those sovereign states. And so that's sort of the, the, the sort of the focus when they talk about the UN and the UN-led international order, where actually the phrase you use uh, uses the you know, uh, international law with the UN at its center, um, they really are focused on the UN's guarantee of sovereignty to its member states and non-interference in the sovereign affairs of that state. And then a related one, which I've been very focused on, is that it's been something, a consistent view that this sovereignty means that states cannot be invaded. <laughs> um, and they, so they've generally opposed, and they've consistently said they oppose the use of force in international relations in line with the UN charter, no matter what. So even if there's a humanitarian crisis, even if there's, um, you know, whatever the sort of justification that the United States has offered, terrorist attack or something like that, you know, you know, China's been very consistent saying we oppose any use of force in international relations, flowing back to the idea that sovereignty and territorial integrity, which is also something the UN guarantees, can't really exist if states can be invaded and conquered by other countries. So those are the ideas. And so sovereignty, states being independent, and that other countries cannot interfere in any way in their domestic affairs, including criticizing them, and that countries should be free from foreign invasion are sort of key components of how China sort of views the world, or at least it did before the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And just one point of clarification, Julian, when you say use of force, you mean the interstate use of force. Is that right? Kind of yeah. the use of force in the context of against the territorial integrity or independence of another state, which is how the UN Charter tends to think of it. Yes. And so the UN Charter prohibits the use of force between states or uh, to violate the sovereignty or territorial integrity of another state. And that's the part that China has really wholeheartedly embraced historically on almost every case that's come up and has frequently criticized the United States on many occasions, but other countries as well for violating that norm. And it flows again to this idea of sovereignty, sovereign equality, non-interference in sovereign affairs is kind of the core of the way China thinks the world should be organized. So, Patricia, let me come to you now for a little bit of a more contemporary picture, but still before the Ukraine invasion this past February. For the last several years, we've seen China take a particular approach in trying to situate itself in this vision of the world order. It has a vision for how China 
can pursue its interests, for the role it should play in the world and in the region. Um, you wrote a really insightful piece for Foreign Affairs, uh, I think towards the end of last year, if I recall correctly, talking about China's quest for alliances and situating itself in these relations with other states. Give us a picture of what China has been pursuing in the years and months leading up to the Ukraine conflict. And in particular, I want you to situate its relationship with Russia, where we saw a major proclamation of perhaps not a formal alliance, but certainly an association and a common interest just weeks before the Ukraine conflict initiated. How did that China-Russia relationship fit into that vision of the world order that China was attempting to pursue and fit itself within? It's been really interesting to watch how China thinks about its strategic partnerships with other countries and how this has evolved, uh, especially under the last 10 or so years uh, with Xi, uh, President Xi Jinping in power. I think, you know, in recent years with its great power status no longer an open question, Beijing has begun to say that it practices a new type of international relations uh, that ostensibly rejects traditional power politics in favor of what it calls win-win cooperation. And there's this, been this effort to, to bolster the narrative that China is different from the United States. It doesn't do military alliances and so on. It doesn't have this outdated, what it calls this outdated Cold War mentality that Washington has. Um, but at the same time, it's been looking around and really strengthening a variety of partnerships that it has with countries like Russia. And so with Russia, it's been really interesting to watch the, the steady growth of the China-Russia relationship. And this has been across all domains, the economic, military, and political domains over the last decade plus. And uh, since 2012, China and Russia have begun conducting increasingly expansive joint military exercises. They've done these regular exercises in the East and South China Sea and further afield with third parties like Iran and, and South Africa. And as you mentioned, Scott, we saw sort of the most striking manifestation of this partnership on February 4th, 20 days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, when President Xi Jinping decided to host President Putin at the opening of the Beijing Olympics, and the two used this occasion to release this unprecedented joint statement in which you know they they kind of espoused shared world views and China explicitly expressed its sympathy and support for Russia's grievances and security demands vis-a-vis -vis Europe, while knowing that there was a chance and a very high one at that that Russia would violate Ukraine's sovereignty in in, in the coming days. And so I think it's just been really striking to watch the strategic alignment between these two countries grow. Um, if you just look back a few decades ago, they considered each other their biggest rivals. But today, I think this partnership has really been motivated by their shared grievances vis-a-vis -vis the West and the deep parallels that Beijing and Moscow see in their respective situation. Uh, Russia believes that NATO is closing in on its sphere of influence, whereas China uh, sees the same with the U.S. alliance network in, in its own backyard. And it feels like the, the two powers believe that they need to work together to push back against this encirclement. And, and finally, it's been really interesting also to see how Beijing talks about its partnership with Russia and to sort of square the circle. You know, China, as I mentioned up front, um, has said that it's against military alliances. It doesn't do that, that those are really destabilizing vestiges of the Cold War and that military alliances and bloc politics should be eliminated. 
And so it says that its relationship with Russia is not a military alliance, but in the same breath, it also says that the China-Russia partnership has no limits, which you know technically means that military cooperation isn't off the table either. So it's been really interesting to see this relationship in particular, and also China's sort of view of its strategic partnerships evolve over the last few years. That really brings us up well to the outbreak of the Ukraine conflict, I think, because we saw the strong statement of a relationship with no limits just a few weeks before the Russian initiation of offensive invasion of Ukraine. And even at that point, you know, the writing was, according to many, on the wall. The Biden administration was out pushing information, sharing intelligence, saying, look, Russia's actually going to do this, even though many commentators and outside folks said, well, we're not 100% sure. Maybe this is still a big bluff. Patricia, do we have a sense about what China's understanding of the Ukraine situation was going into that commitment of, of, a, of a relationship with no limits? Do we have a sense of whether it anticipated the conflict and that that was baked into that commitment? To the extent that maybe it even participated or anticipated assisting or participating at some point? Or was it caught to some extent unawares, perhaps by the scope of a particularly ambitious scope with which President Putin initiated the conflict, you know, seeking to take Kiev, take control of the whole country to the extent he can? Do we know this? Or or is that still a little bit of a black box in terms of how much advance notice and involvement China had at the front end? There are definitely many questions about what role China played in Russia's invasion of Ukraine and whether Xi Jinping, how much he knew in advance, was he tricked by Putin or did he enable Putin to wage his war? You know, there have been uh, public reports with intelligence uh, leaks suggesting that that China did know, the leadership did know that Putin was going to go into Ukraine, that they asked him not to do this until after the, uh, the Beijing Olympics. But, you know, I, I think we may never definitively know just how much was known in Beijing and to what extent. And in fact, it could, you know, very well be the case that Putin himself didn't know that his so-called special military operation wouldn't be quick and easy and would pan out uh, in the way that it has today. Publicly, Beijing has firmly denied that it knew anything about Russia's plans or that it greenlighted them in any way. And um, Chinese interlocutors that I've spoken with have made the case that the fact that their government didn't take steps to evacuate the 6,000 plus Chinese nationals who were in Ukraine before the invasion is a strong piece of evidence that Beijing, too, was caught off guard. So again, I'm not really sure how much we'll know. Perhaps later on, uh, we w- the historians will be able to tell us. Um, but interesting, you know, China's stance from the outset has been to say that it, it's a neutral third party to this conflict. It supports peaceful negotiations and the territorial integrity of all states, uh, while at the same time expressing sympathy and support for Russia's demands. Uh, in terms of what role China is playing today, to assist Russia. I I don't think there's sort of a very concerted effort to help them militarily or even economically. Uh, The Chinese ambassador to the United States has said that China won't contribute weapons or ammunitions to any of the parties in the conflict and that they'll only provide humanitarian assistance, although this assistance has been quite limited, to be frank. In, In terms of what we see in the public domain, and there could be more that's going on um, that we don't see or that I don't see in the in the 
classified domain, but I, it doesn't seem like China is directly helping Russia. Um, it has said that it will and is and is continuing normal trade relations with Russia, that it opposes the sanctions regimes that have been imposed on Moscow. But I don't think that there's been this big effort by Beijing yet, at least, to help Russia evade sanctions in a in a very meaningful way. Uh, and in fact, there are reports that Chinese banks and businesses are quietly working to comply with sanctions um, and that Chinese state-owned refiners are not necessarily rushing in to sign new Russian oil contracts or scooping up discounted oil because they too fear being targets of secondary sanctions. And so, um, you know, I think there's also sort of a business calculation there. Uh, but of course, we'll have to see if this continues to drag on, how will China help Russia continue on? Um, I think we'll have to keep an eye on an eye on that and whether they will not truly send weapons or help Russia militarily if the war continues to drag on. That's something we also have to watch closely. I want to come back to this question about the role China is playing and might play in terms of support, in terms of participation. But before we do, Julian, let me turn back to you. Because this Ukraine conflict in many ways strikes me as a, a turning point or at least a tension point in that narrative of the world order that you laid out for us so ably at the top of this podcast. Um, if nothing else, you know, the West certainly sees Russia's actions to clear war of aggression in violation of the restrictions on the use of force against another state's territorial integrity and independence. That's that's part of the reason why there appears to be, or at least it seems like that's part of the reason why there is such a strong and fairly unified reaction, at least among the United States and, and many of its traditional allies, uh, and states that share a similar worldview. How has China reconciled that tension between that those ideas, that rhetoric, those kind of legal principles that have formed its narrative um, for so long, and this action on Russia's behalf? How is it framing what Russia has done to try and, you know, take the edge off the situation from its perspective. Yeah, this is something I've been following pretty closely. And I think in the very early part and, you know, right after the invasion began, there was a lot of conversation coming out of China on social media and in the sort of the state media. And the state media's approach was first to try to kind of ignore what was happening or to downplay sort of it's like the fifth story on the news, right? And then, and the, notably, they did not use the word in Chinese state media, or the Chinese government has never called it an invasion. They've typically adopted the Russian uh, government's description as a special military operation, and they kind of described it as kind of a limited operation. You know, it, you might imagine from watching Chinese news that was kind of a targeted, very small operation. And so that I think, you know, gives China room to say, well, this is maybe a violation. It's not a big one. It's not a big deal. We're not going to really pay much attention to it. So I don't think they've squarely figured out a way to reconcile this sort of um, what I think is a contradiction with their general approach to things about especially the use of force and what's going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But one strategy is to kind of downplay it and say, look, this is a problem, but there's other problems going on. For instance, you know, this is really caused by NATO and the expansion of NATO, and therefore it's really caused by the United States. And that's what we really should focus on. And we are still here. We still are against the use of force and we want all the fighting to stop. So we call on everyone to stop fighting. And so that is the one way for them to square the circle by saying, look, we're still for peace, but you know, we're not going to blame anyone for starting this fight. So I think what they've evolved to now is sort of describing this as a conflict that's existing 
and that's a tragedy and that's you know should be stopped but they're not they're still unwilling to cast blame on anyone other than the united states maybe in nato for causing the conflict and that, and that's why they've managed to sort of change the conversation from what the legality or propriety of russia's invasion in the first place in the very beginning there were some you know statements issued by say uh, professors academics within especially international law academics in uh in China that issued letters opposing the invasion and in part because it did seem to violate some of these basic principles, but those were quickly sort of uh, censored off the Chinese internet and any sort of conversation uh, along that lines in, in, you know, Chinese social media has been, if not so much wholly suppressed, has been sort of downplayed uh, and sort of pushed aside and certainly has not been um, given any prominence in the state media. One final thing to note, as many folks know, China has had some domestic crises the last month. And the lock, lockdown in Shanghai due to COVID restrictions and what looks like might, what might be a lockdown in Beijing has kind of changed everyone's focus within China, uh, both the media and the people. So that I think whatever sort of confusing messages the Chinese government was sending about Ukraine, at least domestically, is just not going to be an issue. People are just focused on other issues. And I think that makes a difference. It's not something that's lingering out there for people to argue over any, in any sort of great way anymore. Um, I'll just note that I did think that it, it, to me, it really weakens their credibility, though, overseas with other countries if they, you know, they can't seem to bring themselves to condemn the one party that is invading the other country. But I'll note that India has taken the same approach, which is, it's terrible this thing's happened, but we're not going to cast blame on anyone. So, you know, while they are sort of seem to be facing some internal contradictions, um, China's not the only country that's sort of facing some contradictions in its traditional statements about how it believes the world should work and its reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, that that brings us really well to my next question for you, Patricia, which is, you know, what have we seen in terms of the tack that China is taking diplomatically in regards to addressing the scenario and frankly, just advancing its other interests, but nonetheless having to deal with the reality of the Ukraine conflict as a context that is kind of ever present these days around a lot of diplomatic conversations. You've already noted China has already is engaging with Russia, but isn't clearly providing a high concerted level of support, at least not yet, on a variety of domains. But how is it doing it diplomatically? Is it is it being forced to adjust its tack in these efforts to build relationships to, you know, whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative, that's been a major initiative for many years, or simply kind of building out more relationships like it was trying to do with Russia, with other countries in the months beforehand? Or is it, uh, you know, essentially trying to lay back and let this blow over to some extent? Or, or do we just not have a sense yet of exactly how they are, um, how this might be changing the trajectory of the diplomacy that they seem to be pursuing for, you know, the months before the Ukraine conflict started? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think, let me start from, I think, you know, until Russia's invasion of Ukraine, my sense is that Chinese leaders probably saw little downsides to their growing strategic relationship with Russia. I think they probably particularly valued sort of the shock effect that the China-Russia alignment was having on the West. I think Beijing was indeed taken aback by the, the scale of Putin's war and the global outrage and the unified response that the invasion provoked. And of course, the scrutiny that that brought on to China's role in all of this. And, and again, you know, the prospect of secondary sanctions and implications for China's economy and the potential for political fallout at home. 
uh, in a year when Xi Jinping really needs a stable ride to the 20th Party Congress this fall, where he wants or is expecting to secure an unprecedented third term in office. All of that uh, probably shook up the leadership. But nevertheless, uh, you know, we haven't really seen any signs of an about face by Beijing. Uh, I think, you know, Beijing has decided that it doesn't want to jeopardize its ties with Russia. And it, 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 it's decided this because it probably thinks that even if it were to condemn Russia at this point, it wouldn't necessarily improve things too much in the U.S.-China relationship or suddenly take China off of sort of like the, the top of the list of strategic competitors to the United States. And so I think that's why we've seen Beijing not really disavow its partner. Um, although, you know, we did see some efforts by Beijing to, to try to show that it's neutral by choosing to abstain rather than outright veto at the UN Security Council and the UN General Assembly uh, resolution that condemned Russia's war of aggression. Um, and you've seen, you know, efforts by Chinese leaders from President Xi to Foreign Minister Wang Yi you know, make saying and calls with Ukrainian and other European counterparts that China has been taken aback by the situation in Ukraine. They're deeply grieved by the damage to citizens and so on and so forth. And so I think China, you know, really wants to have it all. It wants to preserve its close strategic relationship with Russia. It wants to maintain its economic and diplomatic ties with Europe and key states in Asia and ultimately with the United States. It wants to be seen as a responsible great power, uh, but these are, you know, all very difficult ob objectives to sort of juggle, and I don't know if it's really done that well. You've brought up another issue that I do think we need to drill on a little bit, which is the domestic context um, and the moment this is occurring for the current leadership set in China. Do we have a sense about how the Ukraine conflict is intersecting with Chinese domestic politics? Obviously, there is a, an official narrative, and that narrative tends to get echoed by the state media and other media in China, as, as I understand it, although as someone who doesn't watch these things too closely. Um, but do we have a sense about where this might be hitting some political sensitivities domestically for Chinese leadership in a way that might be complicating, that might feed into their overall policy, given this sense of domestic moment, both in terms of you know, the coming institutional choices they have to make in China's part, and then also these other crises they're dealing with domestically. I'll start with you on that, Patricia. Sure. So, I mean, I don't think it's an easy time at all for Chinese leaders right now. They're dealing with a lot. Uh, they're dealing with carrying out this zero tolerance uh, COVID policy that's run into a lot of criticism, especially in recent weeks with very strict lockdowns in Shanghai um, and a coming lockdown in Beijing. And so there's a lot of um, dissatisfaction within China right now. You know, the, the, the last thing they need is more criticism sort of on, on the fact that Xi Jinping played his foreign policy cards incorrectly. And so I think this is why there's been a real effort to to sort of blame this on the United States in the Chinese media. So uh, Julian talked about this a bit on sort of how the war in Russia or the war in Ukraine is being characterized in the Chinese media as ultimately being sort of the United States and the West's fault and that they are really the ones that have provoked this crisis and that China's doing its best to, to be a neutral third party and to be um, a, a force for peace. And so there's this, uh, there's been this effort to spin it that way. And, and of course, there's another element to this that I should have mentioned, and it's the fact that Xi Jinping has talked about 
his relationship with Putin, his personal relationship, and has really played it up and said, you know, we are bosom friends and brothers. And so it's very hard for the Chinese political system to come out and um, say, actually, maybe we shouldn't have done that. And this is costing us reputationally. It's probably costing us economically as we face uh, the threat of uh, secondary sanctions or sort of more skepticism in Europe and other key areas uh, where, you know, China has great trade interests as well. And so I think there are definitely high stakes here. But nevertheless, the system has chosen to double down. Um, you know, Chinese leaders have not distanced themselves from Russia. As I mentioned, they've said that the China-Russia relationship remains strong. And so I think there's been an effort uh, to, to kind of portray the, the, that uh, Xi Jinping's decisions as right and, and good for China. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So Julian, Patricia's already mentioned one of the big domains where we're seeing discussion about Chinese support for Russia, and a lot of ramifications potentially of the Ukraine conflict for China individually, and that is the economic domain. Um, Obviously, in response to Ukraine conflict, as folks likely know, we have seen really an unprecedented global array of sanctions imposed against Russia that are having substantial domestic impacts, some of which, particularly export controls around sensitive technological sectors, are really designed expressly to, to kind of degrade a lot of the Russian militaries and Russian governments more broadly, kind of mil- technological capacity on the military fronts, on intelligence fronts, and various other capacities. Other elements are meant to, you know, undermine the availability of global financing for infrastructure. A pretty broad assault on the Russian economy on a lot of different fronts. There's this question about to what extent can China help Russia evade those consequences? Russia tried to insulate itself substantially from 2014 onward perhaps didn't anticipate the willingness to target central bank assets, didn't anticipate some of the scale and scope of measures being pursued against them. And so is feeling still a good amount of bite, it seems, from these sanctions, and and that is escalating as time goes on. Do we have a sense about how much China can, and then how much it actually is, help insulate China, or pardon me, insulate Russia from these economic effects? And perhaps maybe more importantly, looking forward, what lessons does China appear to be taking from the Russian experience for how it pursues its own engagement with the global economy? Is China itself trying to find ways to insulate itself perhaps more effectively than Russia did? Or is it taking a different tack, maybe leaning into interdependence in an effort to deter these sorts of efforts? What lessons is it learning from Russia's economic experience coming from this? So on on the first point, I think that China, I think Patricia summed it up well. Is that, you know, China is not their support for Russia is is careful. It's you know they portray themselves as um, neutral, even though they have this you know no limits partnership. And so they 
their their actions probably are more important than words. And I think their actions are showing that the government itself is not making any strenuous efforts to go out of its way to help Russia, while at the same time, the government is not going to take any action to support or to accede to Europe and the United States demands that it sanction Russia. And so truly, I think it's just saying, we're just going to do what we would normally do with Russia as if this war had never happened. And, and you know, the one thing that the Chinese government has condemned, they've not condemned the military invasion of Ukraine, but they have repeatedly condemned, even President Xi personally condemned, unilateral sanctions, what they call unilateral sanctions from Europe and the United States against Russia. So as a sort of a point of principle, uh, the Chinese government is just kind of opposed to these sorts of economic sanctions, at least of the types that the United States and Europe have imposed on Russia. And But at the same time, the Chinese are pragmatists. They're not sort of, they haven't issued any statements. We're going to provide extra aid. We're going to make any efforts to make funding easier. But uh, at the enterprise level, meaning state-owned enterprises or, you know, Chinese businesses will, are free to continue to do business with Russia, but they're not obligated to do so. And some have chosen not to, to avoid secondary sanctions from the United States. And so banks in particular, there are some stories that UnionPay, which is a a Chinese electronic payment systems, has actually backed away from uh, doing business in Russia because of the fear of sanctions. So it's kind of an individual enterprise, Chinese enterprise level decisions to because they are personally dependent on or individually dependent on some foreign product, they will therefore you know, avoid going to uh, do business in Russia. And so there's no um, flood of Chinese businesses going into Russia, although there's a few, to take advantage of things. And they're not, you know, they're willing to be flexible on payment systems. Maybe we'll take rubles, maybe we'll pay rubles, but they're not going to cut Russia a discount or in this case, a premium. And if Russia wants to sell them a gas or oil at a discount, they'll take it. They're not going to try to make up for the difference. And so I think on that front, so they, they've been, I think we can say they're not really helping out Russia as much as Russia would hope, but they're also not cutting off Russia in the way that Europe and the United States wish they would. And so I think in that sense, they're kind of acting in, in you know, a neutral way, really, on in the economic uh, aspects of this. Now, what's interesting is that, of course, China was facing and wrestling with the problem of sanctions before the Russia-Ukraine thing happened, um, of sanctions, especially by the United States, especially technology sanctions. Uh, on on U.S. exports of high-tech products that uh, Chinese companies need. And the Huawei um, sanctions that were initiated actually really began right at the very, in the early Trump administration, but were sort of um, implemented in the middle of the Trump administration, really had a dramatic effect on Huawei, a a very large, one of the largest Chinese telecommunications companies, ability to um, continue to grow. It's not like going bankrupt or anything, but it's explosive growth was severely hampered and all the other Chinese businesses realize this. And I think the Chinese government has already anticipated that it needs to become more independent in developing its own technologies for those things like semiconductors. They put a lot of money into trying to develop that, but uh, to try to to be sort of somewhat more um, sanctions proof. Um, and so they already have, uh, well before any of this happened with Russia, they've been trying to create, you know, really take the lead in developing um, new technologies so that they're not dependent on, um, on, on foreign technology to develop their industries. And they'd like to even get ahead of the uh, foreign companies on technolo- technology development. So I think that strategy will continue and, and nothing on that front will change. I don't. I think they recognize that there's a vulnerability. And I think this has been an important lesson for the Chinese leadership that when Europe, the United States and, and Japan to a lesser degree work together, they can have a dramatic impact on a country through economic sanctions. 
at the same time, I think they're also realizing that they are not Russia and they have, uh, it will be much harder for Europe, the United States and Japan to impose these sorts of sanctions on China, given the dependence of those countries on China. But I do think that one thing that people are worried about, at least observers of China have been worried about, friends of China abroad, is that the Chinese leaders don't realize just how much foreign companies that would otherwise kind of continue investing in China are now nervous about staying in China, that one day maybe they'll face what they had to do with Russia, pull out, you know, immediately due to some event like invading Taiwan. And and so I think there's some, uh, you know, there's some, they're not really recognizing how much this has hurt their image within, especially within Europe and uh, and foreign businesses that would otherwise continue to expand their investments in China. So I think in the long run, I, th- I think they are w- wary of sanctions, but they may not be aware of maybe the long-term Im- impact on their economic development from new reticence among foreign corporations for continuing to expand their sort of business presence in China. Now, there's one issue that's already come up a few times, but that is the scenario where I feel like the most commentators are trying to draw parallels between Ukraine and China, and that is the situation of Taiwan. Uh, I think there's a pretty widespread idea among commentators, although not necessarily experts in in, uh, Taiwan uh, or some of the specifics of these conflicts, but the idea that, you know, if the United States and its allies were able to make Ukraine this hard for Russia to invade, you know, how difficult could they make it for China to take Taiwan. I think there's my my non-experts take is that that's probably an oversimplified parallel. There's a lot of things to differentiate the two situations in terms of time frame, time frame, geography, military capability, type of mission, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, there certainly seems like Ukraine's a situation that China's looking at closely to, to maybe think about, okay, what tools and responses might we anticipate if there were a military effort against Taiwan. Patricia, let me start start with you. You know, how has it seemed that China is incorporating lessons from the Ukraine conflict or how is Ukraine conflict otherwise impacting its thinking about Taiwan to the extent it is and perhaps it isn't? Are there signs that it's taking lessons on board or are should it be uh, or are really most of those parallels pretty overblown? Uh, so I guess. First of all, it's important to note that while there are indeed similarities between Ukraine and Taiwan's case, there are also critical differences, including the history, the geography, and of course, to the United States' interests and commitments to these areas. On Taiwan especially, while the United States may not have an official security treaty with Taipei anymore, it has also made clear for decades through the Taiwan Relations Act that the U.S. has a fundamental interest in the peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And so I just wanted to start out by saying that these are two very different cases. Uh, in terms of taking a step back, in terms of important trend lines we've seen in the Taiwan Strait, uh, I think, first of all, there's a general recognition that the military balance in the Taiwan Strait has and continues to shift in China's favor. Um, And at the same time, there is growing resistance to any kind of unification with the mainland in Taiwan. And there's been a growing independent Taiwanese identity and pride with their democracy and so on and so forth. Given these trend lines, you know, there have been a lot of questions about, well, what is China going to do? Um, Is is there growing urgency in Beijing to um, force some kind of unification on the island? And so that's why there's been a lot of interest there. And of course, with the crisis in Ukraine, there have been even more questions raised about what lessons uh, Beijing is drawing from the situation. And 
I guess what I would say first is that I think it's too early to say what the definitive takeaways and implications will be because this is an ongoing conflict. And so I think it'll really depend on how the war plays out and ends and whether the unprecedented unity we've seen on sanctions against Russia lasts or whether people or whether states begin to crumble as their economic bottom lines are impacted. But I think, you know, Putin's inability to swiftly take Ukraine, as he probably expected, should give the PLA some pause. And it should dampen confidence that they could easily use military force to take the island, even though the balance has been, again, been shifting in Beijing's favor. I think the worldwide outrage on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the unifying effect it had on the United States, Europe, and key states in Asia, who all quickly got behind a sweeping sanctions regime, has arguably demonstrated to Chinese leaders this proof of concept of potential consequences that they might face if China were to carry out an unprovoked attack on Taiwan. And so I think this should assess or this should impact uh, assessments in Beijing as well. But of course, I think China is also learning uh, from what it's seeing. It's been working to become more self-sufficient and to reduce its dependence on the West in recent years. Um, and this this was already in play before the Ukraine uh, war. Uh, so Beijing has signaled over the last two years, for instance, that it intends to shift its focus from expanding outward and on global trade to focus both on that and its uh, domestic economy so that it could spur innovation and consumption at home and let that be a big driver of its growth. And so this, this of course, would help Beijing become more independent from the rest of the global economy. Uh, Chinese leaders have also made clear throughout the years that they want their country to move up the value chain, that they want China to uh, reduce their dependence on the United States and U.S. allies for vital components like semiconductors. And so I think watching the sanctions regime on Russia has probably simply accelerated these trends that were already in play and sped up Beijing's efforts to de-risk its own supply chains, to reduce reliance on foreign components, to reduce the dominance of the U.S. dollar on the global financial system and so on, as it, so that it could prepare for potential contingencies and long-term strategic competition with the United States. So what does that mean for Taiwan? I mean, you, it, I don't think I could say, you know, uh, definitively that this means Beijing will feel more confident or less confident. I think there are multiple factors in play. And I think, again, what happens in Ukraine and ultimately how it's resolved and what position Russia is in afterwards uh, will be critical also for sort of shaping Chinese calculations. Julian, there's another element of this of the Taiwan conundrum I, I want to turn to you on. And that, again, ties back to this framing of international law and international order that China has tended to advance. There are, you know, parallels between the Russian narrative about Ukraine, about Ukraine being essentially part of Russia that was, you know, kind of unfairly removed uh, in the 20th century and se separated, but was never really actually separate and should be reunified with it. There's clear parallels between that, uh, or at least one can draw clear parallels between that and the Chinese narrative regarding Taiwan, uh, at least from an outsider's perspective. It seems that way to me. 
how has China navigated those sorts of parallels? Is it something it's avoiding uh, in its public rhetoric? Uh, have we seen, I guess, Russia try and invoke that at all to um, and China respond to it one way or another? Or, or is it leaning into it, saying like, yeah, this is actually a parallel situation? Uh, ha- have we seen the Taiwan-Ukraine parallels play any sort of role in, in the legal and rhetorical framing around these actions? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, And I think that what's interesting is that the Chinese foreign ministry has gone out of its way to repeatedly say Taiwan is not Ukraine and Ukraine is not Taiwan. Um, And from their perspective, it makes a lot of sense. They they have already sort of recognized that Ukraine is a sovereign state independent. And for the reasons we discussed earlier, therefore, in theory, should not be invaded by other countries. But and China has has relationship and embassies and, and recognized Ukraine as independent country for three decades now, right, since 1991. So, and the reason they don't want Taiwan to be analogized to Ukraine is because in the Chinese government's view, Taiwan is not an independent country. And to back that up, you know, they point to the fact they work very hard to make sure that no other countries have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, right? And to make sure that Taiwan is isolated internationally and is not members of international organizations. This is an almost obsessive focus of the Chinese government in their foreign affairs is to make sure that no other country has any kind of official relationship with Taiwan. And so from their perspective, they don't want to go anywhere near that analogy. And they've repeatedly be, be, uh, aggressively denouncing that. And one the, and it's interesting to note that the Taiwan government has embraced it to some degree, which is kind of weird if you think about it. But from the Taiwan government's perspective, they are like Ukraine, right? They're an independent country. Um, facing the in their democracy and they're facing um, uh, external invasion and uh, the world should rally or hopefully the world would rally to Taiwan in the way it rallied to Ukraine. And so you see the Taiwan government running toward that analogy and the Chinese government running away from it. I, I would find just as a, as a footnote here, Scott, as lawyers, it's kind of ironic because, you know, I think at least from my perspective and Patricia, I think is correct in saying the U.S. probably has a deeper more important strategic interests in defending Taiwan uh, than it does Ukraine. And so, but as a legal matter, the U.S. doesn't recognize Taiwan as an independent country, at least not right now. So it's kind of odd that it's it's more likely to actually probably come to the defense of Taiwan if it came to it than it does to Ukraine, which is kind of ironic given this, the different legal statuses of the two countries. I will say one other thing that has happened is that the analogy has not played out well with the Taiwanese public, which recent polls have showed that confidence in the United States coming to defend Taiwan have dropped within Taiwan as a result of what they saw in Ukraine. They saw Ukraine being invaded and the United States not coming to the defense uh, of Ukraine, providing military weapons, but not otherwise uh, directly coming to the defense of Ukraine. And that has, I think, to some degree, uh, not demoralized maybe, but has sort of scared the Taiwanese public a little bit more um, because I think there had been maybe some feeling in Taiwan that the U.S. would likely, if not definitely come to their defense in the event of a Chinese invasion. So we're coming to the end of our time together, but but I kind of want to leave you both with um, one last question. And that is, how should we think about the Russia-China relationship moving forward from this point? Where does it look like there might be, if there are any, red lines? Uh, you know, what is the tolerance that China has for what Russia is pursuing? And are there steps that either Russia could take or other states could take that might push China to take a side more strongly, either in favor of Russia against Russia, whether it is 
actually, you know, a military conflict extending into Russian territory, uh, whether it's Russia using chemical weapons or nuclear weapons. Do we have any sense about exactly where China feels like, okay, if things go past this point, we're going to have to change our tack and be a little bit more active leaning one way or the other between these two sides. And in that respect, what is it we really should be looking forward to, signs we should be looking for from China in terms of how it is thinking about this conflict and when it may be getting closer to those red lines, when it may feel the need to pursue some sort of policy change moving forward? Uh, Patricia, I'll start with you. Uh, so that's a great question. And, um, you know, you mentioned chemical weapons and Russia using those. And would that push China to take a different tack? Uh, that's something that I've been telling my Chinese counterparts that um, already sort of the Chinese response to the Russian invasion is seen as woefully inadequate here in Washington. Um, and I think it's really raised questions about China's strategic intentions. It's it's uh, and the, the potential for sort of the U.S.-China relationship and how it develops over the long term. There's certainly been a narrowing of views of China here in Washington over the years. And while everyone agrees that China is a competitor, uh, you know, there are those who feel that China is an existential competitor, that um, there's just nothing we can do with Beijing. And really, the only thing we should do is to, to blunt its rise and, and make sure that it doesn't um, become or, or overtake the U.S. or grow in prominence. Whereas there are others uh, who say, well, yes, China is a competitor, but it, we can keep this competition sportsmanlike. We're going to compete for the best uh, political system or the best economic growth or for, for, you know, for better technology and so on. But this could really remain, um, you know, a sportsmanlike competition. And ultimately, we need to cooperate on global challenges like climate change or in conflict zones like Ukraine or, or the Korean Peninsula. And I think China's actions so far have really um, thrown doubt that this second sort of more moderate future with China is possible. And so I think if there were some sort of use of chemical weapons by Russia and China still continued to go down the same path that it is now, this would further hurt China's image and sort of the, the ability, the perception that we can continue to work with China in some capacity here in Washington. Having said that, if we don't see any sort of dramatic changes and, and we see sort of the status quo wear on, I don't expect China to distance itself from Russia. As I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I think China is really looking to keep its strategic partners close. Uh, it certainly does not want to make an enemy of its nuclear power neighbor and to be bogged down with a rivalry with Moscow, just as, as it was during the second half of the Cold War. Uh, it's looking for as many partners as possible as it tries to chip back on U.S. what it sees as U.S. encirclement and the growth of the U.S. alliance network in its neighborhood. And so I don't really see China adjusting its tack towards Russia if there isn't some sort of deterioration. Um, but we'll, yeah, we'll have to continue to watch. And again, I think the Ukraine crisis has made clear that there are deep inherent tensions between China and Russia, despite their alignment on this sort of anti-Western front. I think China, while it resents Western dominance, unlike Russia, uh, doesn't want to blow up the existing international order. It, it, it wants to modify it, and want, but it wants to also continue to thrive in a world where it seeks geoeconomic prominence. And to do that, it, you need to maintain 
balance ties with major economies in Europe and Asia and so forth. And so I think it's really important at this juncture for the United States and its allies to continue to message to Beijing that China has a stake in playing a more constructive role going forward, even if it hasn't up to this point, that it really should make good on its claim to be for peaceful negotiations, at the very least, not by contributing to Putin's confidence that he can continue his war of aggression in Ukraine and, and hopefully doing more to try to bring the two parties to the table and to signal to Russia that its current approach is unsustainable. I guess for me, I'm, I have a slightly different take, which is that, well, not so much a different take. I think China is very comfortable where it is now. It's hemmed in by its need for Russia as much as Russia needs it. Uh, and it really doesn't think that it can make up its relations, build, rebuild its relations with the United States at the very least, and maybe not with Europe. And so in a world where they don't have good relations with the United States and Europe, uh, they need Russia. And the Ukraine crisis reveals that they're willing to take a lot of reputational hit to maintain that alliance with Russia. Now, I think, I think as Patricia mentioned, um, we might be facing uh, you know, a situation where the outcome of the Ukraine war really changes that assessment a little bit. But I think even if Russia is really humiliated, we, we still have you know, maybe like a gigantic North Korea, which China still does not abandon, right? China is still the only other country that China always aligns itself with, at least usually is North Korea. And, and despite all of North Korea's things that it does to annoy China, and so we, 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 because for reasons outside of how North, how much it likes North Korea, it needs North Korea and North Korea regime to uh, protect its own security interests. And I wonder if we'll see that attitude in China with respect to Russia, no matter how bad things get with Russia, how terrible Russia is and how horrible it is. And even if these chemical weapons, you know, we still need Russia in the long run to protect our own security interests. And so we'll put up with a lot. And so that is my pessimistic take that is why I don't think there's any prospect of China changing its tack to become more critical of Russia. The only real concern is whether we can deter China from supporting Russia more. And so far, I think the threats that both Europe and the United States have made with respect to secondary sanctions against China have had an effect. And that um, I think that has at least made clear to them that they'll pay costs if they do openly uh, support Russia. And so that's why I think they're happy with their a neutral stance, but I, I can't see any situation uh, where uh, they're going to move any um, further away from Russia, I think, uh, nor do I really see anything that would really push them uh, aggressively toward Russia uh, more than they already are, um, except maybe, I suppose, a collapse of the Russian government might be something they feel like they need to intervene in. But even then, um, I'm not sure that they would feel need to, to do more than they're doing now. So I think they're pretty comfortable where they are, and I think it'd be very hard to push them off their current position. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there. But Patricia Kim, Julian Koo, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And look out for Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest podcast series on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the partners we left behind, Allies, which will be debuting soon. Be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at www.patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and other special perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell, and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. 
As always, thank you for listening. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.